This is a test of the emergency podcast system. Activated by contract termination. Rumors of our demise are greatly exaggerated. Welcome to Stacy on the Right with your host, Stacy Washington. She's blessed to be a Bible reading, gun toting, Air Force veteran, wife, and mom, righteously American. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. We all know that we are the children of God and that the whole world is under control of the evil one. And I could go on, but there are many, many, many Bible verses that cover evil. What happens when evil strikes? What makes Uh, evil so prevalent, and how we as Christians are to really become inured to it, not that we don't suffer, that we don't mourn, that we don't feel the pain of actual, uh, it's crushing. It's what's happened over the weekend with the the mass shootings. It's, It's devastating. And it makes us question a lot of things, but we can't question our faith. And so welcome to the program. I'm Stacey Washington, host of Stacey on the Right, here on our own independently syndicated network. So welcome to our affiliates and also welcome to those of you who are watching on the live stream and our fantastic podcast audience. We are so blessed to be with you today. Uh, yesterday, just as a programming note, um, you might have noticed there was no live stream. We did have a podcast up, which you can find at listen.stacyontheright.com. Uh, we were actually running around, me and the oldest daughter, um, touring a grad school opportunity for her because she is uh, she's an undergrad, obviously, but her career aspirations, she hopes will take her to graduate school and it's very competitive. And so you have to kind of start basically interviewing and, and touring these places so you know where to apply. And so that's what we did yesterday. So it meant I couldn't be with you, but any opportunity to spend time with our oldest, biggest girl, our best girl, who um, is the only oldest child we have here. Um, it was just a great day for us to get to go. I can't tell you how much. I enjoyed going through that grad school. We got one of the best tours, I think. You know, sometimes you can go with the group and you can get a decent tour or you can go on your own and you stumble upon um, someone who is like really passionate about what they do and you get this tour that's just like phenomenal, out of this world, fantastic. And so that's what we got yesterday. So that's where I was. Um, But I'm back now and the conversation that I was dying to have with you yesterday is what we're going to have today. Still a story that's roiling the news and really it's obviously it's not going to go away. The discussion about what happened over the weekend where two people with evil in their hearts were able to exact punishment upon innocent people. And our country is in the midst of a real it's it's a choice that we have to make. We're on a road. We're on a path. Um, This isn't something that's fresh and unique to President Trump. And it's not about him. When I hear people talking about the mass shootings that happened over the weekend and talking about President Trump, I know that they don't really have the best interests or the cares of the families that were impacted by the shooting. They don't have their their feelings in, in mind. Anyone who lost someone over the weekend, their concern is not with who's the president right now. Their concern is with the state of our culture. And our culture is sick right now. It, it's in need of a remedy. And the remedy is Jesus Christ. And we know this because that is the rock on which we stand. And it is the area where we can, we know that God's word doesn't change. He doesn't change. Nothing about him changes. He is steadfast and movable and we can trust him um, to, to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. So I want to talk about um, some of the things that we see with these mass shootings and I'm, I'm approaching this from the position that I have always approached it from. I've been writing about these things uh, for eight or nine years now. I remember we had a, there was a school shooting and I wrote about it when evil strikes and that op-ed was picked up by some newspapers across the country and it, I wrote it for Project 21 and the information in that op-ed still stands today. Um, look, 
the people that we're seeing who are being gunned down and really now it's a Walmart and leftists want to draw a connection between the location, the Walmart and the fact that Walmart sells firearms. Is this about the law abiding people who buy guns at Walmart? Cause you have to have a background check if you buy a gun at Walmart. Or is this about someone who decided he'd had enough and he was going to go and exact punishment on people? Is this about the fact that our own personal responsibility is to protect ourselves. Yes, we rely on the fire, the police and fire departments and everyone else, but they're first responders. They are not our personal bodyguards. We have to be prepared to defend ourselves. So we need to have a conversation, not about the hysteria that we feel when these things happen, not about the, the events, but their cause. There is no significant upward trend in mass shootings. First, that, that's the first thing we need to talk about here. Although it seems they're more prevalent because of the news coverage, they are not more prevalent. And more people die in Chicago and Baltimore and other inner cities around the country on a monthly basis than we have died by mass shootings on a monthly basis. So as a causation, if you place things in order, mass shootings are not a primary cause of death in this country. So does that make them any less frightening? Of course not. But it doesn't warrant the kind of attention and uh, politicization we're seeing, which means the people who are doing the politicization are not doing it because they care anything about the victims of mass shootings. They're doing it because it's an opportunity for them to enlarge their cause and benefit what they believe in. So most studies reflect, you know, obviously the better recorded data of the later 20th later half of the 20th century, but mass killings were just as prevalent in the 1920s and 30s, although the mass killings were not uh, primarily used, firearms were not the primary mode of, of death in those. So the first thing I want to highlight, and I, I, I guess I might as well just put out a disclaimer. If you're going to be triggered or insulted about what I'm going to share, I want to apologize to you first off for the fact that you're going to be triggered. I'm going to plow through though, because this has to happen And second of all, I want to encourage you, if you feel triggered by the information that I'm sharing, to absorb it rationally, remove your feelings from the situation, and then say, maybe come back to the information. But give the information a chance. That's all I'm asking. I I don't need you to like me or to, you know, think that that this isn't about me. It's not about President Trump. It's about being able to basically absorb information. So... We've kind of lost our ability to think rationally about mass killings because they've been politicized. We want to blame everything but the person who pulled the trigger. And the reason is because it gets people motivated to vote. And so we're all kind of getting sucked into this vortex of everybody takes a position on one side or other of the Second Amendment. And then we try to point fingers to say whose fault it is. How about the person who did the shooting? How about that person? It's their fault. They decided to get a firearm and kill a bunch of folks. In one case, over the weekend, the guy killed his own sister. Not sure if he knew she was there or, I mean, it just, it's, it's unbelievable that we're not blaming him, the trigger puller. Next off, no race or ethnicity or religion in particular has the ability to mass massacre people has cornered the market on that. Now, certain ideologies are more prone to it. But if you're just looking at people themselves, people are going to find ways to kill other people as long as people are breathing and living on this earth because we are depraved and indifferent human beings in need of a savior. Boom. That's the point. And what can you do but agree with it? Now, we know that there are some things that we can do to impact how people uh, kind of react to trauma. And so the first thing we can do is go over the five stages that culminate in a perfect storm leading to individuals actually committing these massacres. And I want you to hear this because every person in America should know these five stages and be able to recite them from memory so that when you see someone in one of these stages, you can call the appropriate authorities and prevent one of these massacres from occurring. And until we're willing to be more proactive about the way that we behave and observe each other and care for each other, we're going to continue to have these things, but they're not more prevalent. They're not more frequent. So please stop saying that. So stage one is chronic strain. An individual has a range of negative experiences over time, 
And it's not really a one specific factor. This isn't unique to postal workers or, or, uh, daycare workers or high school students. It's a human being experiencing chronic strain. They could have a history of mental illness, although the vast majority of mass shooters have never been diagnosed. So it's not an issue of strictly mental illness. In fact, people with mental illness are actually less likely to commit any crimes compared to those who do not. But there must be some trouble that reoccurs or is generally unmanaged, whether it's a history of sexual abuse, family violence, torment at school, drug abuse, financial problems. Those kinds of strains, if left unaddressed, can culminate in a person going into stage two. Stage two is uncontrolled strain. This is where a person has negative experiences coupled with a lack of appropriate coping strategies. They have no really good social relationships, a network of people who can say, hey, wait, you, you're stressed or hey, you've lost your job. You, your family is in, in financial distress. Let us come alongside you and help. Do you need an ear to talk to? And I don't mean just a text message. I mean a, a network of people who would say, we know that our friend lost their job. We haven't seen them in church in two weeks. Their kids are missing days out of school. And then a bunch of people show up at the door with a hot meal, you know, a, a little envelope with money stuffed in it and some solutions, meaning sit, rub that person's back, listen to them pour out their heart. If they start crying, you don't turn away and, and disgust. You hand them some tissue and say, we love you. And thank you so much for sharing your burden with us. Thank you for letting us be a part of this experience. We're going to get to the other side. When that happens, you're staving off the kinds of things we're seeing with these mass shootings. But if it doesn't happen, the uncontrolled strain, which is stage two, on a person who's often thought of to be an introvert or a loner, a person who doesn't have a lot of time in appropriate or healthy outlets, they're not members of groups, they don't attend church, then that person can move from uncontrolled strain into stage three, which is acute strain. Acute strain is a single and serious event The person perceives it as worse than it really is as being catastrophic. So they lose their job and they see it as being catastrophic. They're let go from work and they feel that the circumstances around them being let go from work are so unfair and so unbelievably taxing that they can't get over it. They're now in acute strain, that's stage three. And this could be something that happened directly to them, as I was describing with a job, or it could be that it's an act of terrorism that they want to strike back at or an election loss that they feel is completely unmerited. They're personally invested and it coincides with beliefs they already have. And this is where you have a culmination or breaking point, which moves them into stage four. Stage four is where they begin to actively plan an attack. Each and every mass shooter we have ever seen happen in this country has spent copious amounts of time preparing. These massacres don't happen as a moment of rage. Often, more often, most often, the red flags are observable to others. 90% of all mass shooters were surrounded by people who noticed warning signs like personality changes um, in an individual that seem more positive than their usual mood. It's as if they've given up on whatever they were worried about or it's been resolved to utter satisfaction. They're almost giddy. These people will often make comments. They're going to be sorry. Watch out on Tuesday. Um, Soon, this won't be a problem for me anymore. Don't worry about it. It can be similar to the signs of someone who's actually preparing to commit suicide. So if you're thinking about it in that way, like that's that's one way you can view it. Um, Sometimes they'll withdraw from personal relationships. Sometimes they'll give their personal belongings away and This is especially true when the shooter plans on killing themselves after they've killed everyone else. So if you notice a pattern of these behaviors in someone you know, you should report it to the local police. Now, let's say you're you're sitting here right now and you're listening to me and you're like, you're good up until I just said report to the local police. Is it better to report it and have it be nothing and maybe that person's a little upset with you for a while? Or you might feel a little silly when the police say, it turns out it's nothing, they really are just fine. Or is it better to report it to the police and to realize, you know what, I reported it and it went, you know, they stopped them from doing a mass shooting. I mean, take, take, which, which do you prefer? 
And then the final stage is the attack. And we're going to go into the break here in just a sec. Uh, yeah. <laughs> this Rivendell computer, it rocks. <laughs> okay. I'm going to go through step five and then the aftermath and what we can do. You don't want to miss this. Stay right there. I'm Stacey Washington. We'll be right back. This is the story of a very special woman. Just a few knew about her superpowers. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her Mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources at aarp.org caregiving. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Hope you enjoyed your meal. And I just want to say, he's lucky to have a brother like you. Lucky? Caring for my brother is far from easy. But he's a part of me, like my arms and legs, so I'll be his. No time for tired. Nothing can disable this love. He needs me, but I'm the lucky one, even though I need help now and then. If you're caring for a loved one, visit aarp.org caregiving for care guides and community. Support for your strength. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Okay, man, this is your time. Maybe you didn't choose this, but you're here now. You're going to go out there and be an all-star caregiver. Cook, clean, be there emotionally and physically. you got to dig deeper. Drive them to physical therapy, doctor's appointments, because that's what caregivers do. Don't give up. Show the world that you're tougher than tough. Caregiving is tougher than tough. Find the care guides you need at aarp.org slash caregiving. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. If you love them enough to listen to them practice the same song on tuba, please be done. Over and over and over and over and over. Then surely you'll check NHTSA.gov slash the right seat to make sure they're correctly buckled in the back seat. Sounds good, honey. Check today at NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Act Council. Hi, I'm your host, Smokey Cole Bear. Filling in for Smokey, because after 75 years of... Only you can prevent wildfires. Turns out there's much more to say. Nearly 90% of wildfires are caused by us humans being careless. Dumping our used barbecue coals willy-nilly. Guess the song was wrong. We did start the fire. That's why I respect Mother Nature and her trees, whether coniferous or new car scented. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. The average time a resume spends on an HR manager's desk is seven seconds, and most of them are tossed aside. Now imagine if one of those resumes belonged to Yasmin, who was... Living in a shelter, juggling three jobs. I had to be resilient. That's something that you can't teach. We rely so much on a resume, yet it could never tell the full story of someone who... Had to be independent and take initiative, and that's how I handle every project I get. Discover new ways to develop great talent at gradsoflife.org. Brought to you by Grads of Life and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the program. Stacey Washington here. Listen.stacyontheright.com is where you can find the podcast. Please share them. We want to get our numbers up as high as possible so we can get some advertising going on in here because I'm self-employed, y'all. I'm self-employed. And thanks to so many of you who have donated to the show to support our mission to get out there and spread Christian worldview and the gospel and to elevate the pro-life message. I'm so excited to be with you today. And I, I feel like our subject matter is tough. But we are tough, we are resilient, and we can handle this. Um, and there's so much more for us to get into. I have the uh, chat room open, and I just want to say hi to Chi and Tracy and Smoke. Thanks so much for being here. I read y'all's comments from yesterday where you were like, where is she? <laughs> I'm like, oh, I should have gone into the chat room. But we were literally, we the tour took like five hours. It was so involved. I got a lot of steps into my Fitbit. Um, so, hey, everybody, thank you so much for being here. All right, so we were talking about, and I have a, a bunch more information I want to share with you today. So I want to make sure and get to all of it. And we have this segment and then one more in our new hour-long format. And, of course, we will expand once we have sponsors. We'll be back at two hours. So just, you know, um, yeah, we'll be back. But 
right now. I was going over these steps where we get from um, stage one, chronic strain, stage two, uncontrolled strain, stage three, acute strain, stage four is the planning, and then we went to the break. So now, um, stage five is the attack, and we went over everything on stage four with the planning stage. So stage five is the attack. Mass shooters choose a location that is familiar and also where they believe people they are disgruntled with personally or disagree with generally would gather whether the disagreement is political, religious, or any other ideological belief. And then that's where they launch the attack. Now, I got to say, this is the methodical line by line. It doesn't mean that this happens this way every single time, but it means that nine times out of 10, this is the way it happens. So at any point, you can see the signs of an impending attack in an individual. And instead of saying, ah, they'll be fine, you have to pay attention and you have to say, you know, go to the person and ask them. Is everything all right? How are you doing? Uh, you know, is there anything you want to talk about? Or I know you're having trouble with X. Let's talk about it. Let me buy you a cup of coffee. Let me buy you lunch. Or maybe you just press 20 or 40 bucks into their palm and say, hey, you know, I know you, you just I just lost your job. Here's some money. Um, and also, I, I know we have an opening at our workplace. You know what I'm saying? Like anything you can do to feel that person out and find out where they are. And also any help that you can provide, which will make that person see that where they have honed in, they want to have revenge on this person or that person, that it really doesn't have to be that way because there are other people out there who want to help them, right? Uh, so the aftermath, let's talk about that really quickly. Most research actually suggests that the media's role in glorifying the aftermath of a mass shooting is dysfunctional. Early reporting is often inaccurate and it's overall plain harmful. News agencies see spikes in their ratings and readership goes up when these crimes occur. And so they overexplain the situation down to needless details and exploit the monetary benefits of the larger audience. The Journal of Crime and Justice Study asserts that the most salient predictors of how much media coverage a mass shooting receives depends on the race and ethnicity of the shooter as well as the victim count. Do I, I need to say that one more time for, for, for the people in the back. Journal of Crime and Justice study asserts that media coverage can be measured by how many victims and whether or not the the, the shooter is a white person. I mean, this this is a pathology that we're watching. In the pathology of the media's behavior after a mass shooting is just as dangerous as the actual mass shooting itself because it can prompt others who are on the edge to act out and do a mass shooting as well. So mainstream media essentially becomes a broker for tragedy. I won't use their term. Basically, it's it's uh, people wanting to watch a tragedy. It's almost like a sick, perverse, you know, you can't turn away. It's like a train wreck. So you keep watching and everyone tunes in. And even though it's awful, they're meeting a demand put on them because justifiably the public is crying out. What happened? Why did it happen? Who can we make pay for this now? Just as a a tangent, quick segue or whatever, uh, the president said in his remarks yesterday that he wants to see the death penalty immediately enacted on people who do mass shootings. And it would be an amazing deterrent. No joke. If if we had a system where if you've been seen doing a mass shooting, so, you know, innocent until proven guilty, obviously, but you have an expedited trial, you have a special jury that convenes and the, the execution is immediate. You're convicted. There are no appeals because you're on tape doing the shooting. There are no extenuating circumstances. You pick up a gun, go shoot up a whole bunch of folks. You're going straight to hanging, firing squad, uh, chair. Cause they can't fake it. So there's, there's no faking a mass shooting. So, um, it would be a deterrent. People would think, okay, I want to get back at these people, but I also don't want to be swinging on high in front of the entire country on television. So I guess, I'm probably not going to do this. Are you kidding? It would be a deterrent. Now, of course, liberals would want the person to go to jail for the rest of their life and then parole them at 20 years because liberals are soft on crime and they do everything by their feelings. But I mean, it is a good idea and I'm glad the president brought it up. Um, so schools and facilities that implement safety measures are focused on protocols around, around the response to a future attack. And these procedures ignore the factors that lead to the crime in the first place. 
These policies tend to be short-sighted and damaging since mass shootings are still very rare events, accounting for only 0.13% of all gun deaths between 1989 and 2014. Because of the fourth planning stage and the familiarity that the shooter has with the targeted location, most of these safety protocols can be adapted to and overcome. The recent Gilroy Garlic Festival shooter entered the event through a creek and wooded area to avoid the metal detectors that were placed at the gate. So there's more info here. Um, I, I suffice it to say, researchers have a strong consensus that while either policy step regarding firearms may impact ordinary gun crimes, any new laws that are basically precipitated by mass shootings would have zero effect on future mass shootings. So the idea here is to get some law, some some magical, you know, sweet, beautiful, big, impressive law. And that one law would trump all the other tens of thousands of laws that we currently have on the books. And it would make mass shootings go away. Only liberals think that kind of immature, nonsensical, illogical drivel. Regular people know that if someone has evil in their heart, they're going to find a way and the way to remedy that is relationship it means we have to get our faces out of our phones and start paying attention to what is going on with human beings that are around us who are hurting anytime someone loses a job goes through a divorce these are things that are happening all around us all the time and One of the things that I think has been so damaging about the way that we interact with each other now is everything's based on politics. Everything's based on whether or not we agree with each other, whether you hate Trump or not. Uh, It's fascinating because we recently had an interaction with someone. We were having a completely apolitical discussion and the person just interjected with an insult to President Trump to which, you know, we kind of just looked down and didn't respond because we were not in a political situation. And contrary to what people might think about me with all the branding and the logo and the Stacy on the right, this and that, when I am not working here in the studio and when I am not writing or doing, you know, radio interviews, TV interviews, whatever, I'm not just diving into political discussions with strangers. And the reason is because it's not beneficial. I, unless I actually came there to have a political discussion with you, why would I waste my time talking politics then when... I, I'm already talking politics a ton. I don't need to discuss it anywhere else. And especially not if I'm doing something with the kids or with my husband or even if I'm by myself. What makes you think I want to talk politics when like, you know, and, and I don't mean it because the person knew who I was. I think it was kind of interesting because the person didn't know that I this is what I do. And the, the comment, it just flew right over me because I don't always have time to talk politics. And it's very divisive. So why even go there? So these steps, I have this in the show notes, listen.stacyontheright.com for that piece there. I think it was one of the best explainers I've seen in the days since the shooting. And and before that, there are so many talented people um, out there writing and putting out information on this subject. And so I want to make sure and get that to you. I have something else. Um, myth, narrative of rampant white nationalist mass shootings is overblown. We all know this. You can find this piece to read for yourself. I just wanted to give you the title there um, because I have so much stuff to get through. I want to make sure and get through all of it. Um, This one is over at the Daily Caller. You've got to be kidding me. El Paso victim shocked when realizing his gun-wielding mother left her firearm at home the day of the shooting. This is a survivor of the El Paso, Texas shooting. He told CNN's Chris Cuomo that he was shocked when he found out his gun-wielding mother did not have her firearm on her when they were both under attack at the Walmart in El Paso, Texas. He was talking to the Daily Caller from his hospital bed where he's recuperating. He said he couldn't believe that his mom decided not to bring her 38 special revolver before they went to the Walmart where 22 people were killed and 26 people were injured. He says... I wish my gun-toting mom had brought her 38 special with her. We must all protect ourselves, hoping for a speedy recovery for the survivors. I know, by the way, the guy who said this, his gun-toting mama and him are both sporting the permanent tan. So Chris Cuomo probably almost passed out. She, he said, I ran towards my mother to try to shield her. And I'm like, mom, because my mom is a gun-wielding grandma. She carries a snub-nosed Smith & Wesson 38 special with a built-in scope on it everywhere she goes. 
He says when he gets to her and he's covering her, she tells him, I didn't have it. I don't have the firearm. She says an hour before we went to Walmart, she decides, oh, we're just going to Walmart. I'm going to put it in my room. So I went to her, no gun. And I'm like, oh my G-O-D, you've got to be kidding me. And I was like, then she took it off and it was chaos. She took off and it was chaos. So he thought he was going to go to his mom and take her gun from her and, you know, use it to um, protect other people. And he wasn't able to do it because she didn't have it with her. And my question is, if he's old enough to take the gun from her, why doesn't he have a firearm too? Wouldn't it be better two armed as opposed to none? So again, questions, questions, uh, and it's always hindsight's twenty twenty, and this is something that all gun owners do. Sometimes you just leave the house and you just don't feel like carrying, and so you put your gun away and you don't carry it in. Um, but it's that time that you decide not to carry it that you might find yourself needing it, and this is a fascinating look at that particular instance. So I want to get to a little bit more of what we have here, and and let me just quickly go over to chat room. Um, yeah, Smoke says, we point fingers, blame the person or that person, this person or that person for what happened. But the truth of the matter is we have a sin problem. And this is the chat room over at Um People keep using the term copycat. Well, it's being copied. But from what standpoint? Hmm, yes, kicking God out is most definitely a root cause. Mm-hmm, yeah, I, I do too. Smoke said, I wish we had just one one major news network that would actually tell the truth. I I wish we had one that was mainstream where Americans could turn to get some unfiltered news. I don't see that happening. Um, yeah. And, and one American news now is one of those places that I believe they, they spread the truth. They have great reporters and content over there and everybody over there is young. I mean, these are young people They're and they're, I hope to see them one day as big as Fox news. Uh, they're, they're, you know, very little opinion, almost all news. It's fantastic. Uh, so I'm going to go over as I'm getting, well, let me just transfer out of this. It's so much fun to do the show like this, like I can do. Um, guys, when I'm doing the show and I'm pressing all the buttons, this is on the inside. This is how I feel. Yes, I have a hot button, you guys. <laughs> I just have one right now, but suffice it to say, um, yeah, I have a hot button. So now uh, I want to talk a little bit about Mexico saying that they would try to e- extradite the shooter, which was one of their dumbest moments. Um, and, and a friend of mine, we were talking about, and he said, what's going to end up happening with them is they're going to be teaching journalism schools and journalism schools are going to say one of the dumbest moments ever in in you know PR is when Mexico said they would try to extradite the El Paso shooter. And my question is where are they on extraditing the people who kill our citizens? Why doesn't Mexico ever say, "Oh my goodness, that guy was deported six times and he killed Kate Steinle? How about we don't 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 prosecute him. Give him to us. We're going to give him some of that Mexican justice. We're going to let him know what happens when you go up to our ally, the United States, where a third of our GDP comes from our citizens in their country, sending money back down to us. We're going to let you know you kill an American and you're coming back to Mexico and we're going to take care of you Mexican justice style. When do they say that? When does the president of Mexico ever step up to the mic and say, you know what? It's kind of amazing to me that 1,800 of your people are kidnapped by our people every year. It's a shame and it's a travesty. It disgusts us. And so we want to, we want to partner with you on that. Hey, guess what? 2,500 rapes a year. We don't think that's right. We should not be raping you. You're good allies to us. You actually fund our GDP. What we're going to do is we're going to stop that from happening. We're going to bring those people back to us. Let us take care of these injustices. If we have people entering your country illegally, I mean, we're not really, we don't really want to stop that because the fact is it benefits us. But if we can stop them from hurting you, we're definitely going to do that because we want you to leave your southern border open. I mean, can we just get real right quick? Can, can we just be real about that really quickly? You want your people here illegally so they can send money back to you and so they can live the life that you can't provide. Yet when your people are killed by an American mass shooter, you're all up in arms and you're losing it. But because you think your people are important and, you know, God bless you. Good for you. You get a gold star here. Let me press the button one more time, Mexico. You think your people are more valuable than Americans. Happy for you. 
glad to glad glad that you have feelings. Also glad that you love your people. You don't love them enough to provide a country they can live in, but okay, you love your people a lot, and they're more important than Americans. But how dare you? How dare you fix your mouth to try to act like you should do something about your people being killed here, but you ain't done diddly about your people killing our people here. Okay? That's why we don't receive that, Mexico. Keep it. We don't want any. All right, we'll be back with the last segment after this. (laughs) Stay there. It's Olivia Munn with my shelter pets, Frankie and Chance. Say hi, guys. When I adopted them, I discovered that they both have incredible personalities. Chance's sole purpose in life is to love and to be loved. Frankie is a little bit of a scoundrel and always entertaining. They're a little bit of a lot of things, but they're all pure love. Adopt pure love at theshelterpetproject.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council, the Humane Society of the United States, and Maddie's Fund. Melissa from Michigan. I work an extra part-time job serving lunch at my child's school, but I still can't afford to put food on our table. Daniel from California. Choosing whether to pay the rent or pay to fix the car to get to work doesn't leave us with much at all. Now we can't even pay for meals. Hunger is a story we can end. End it at feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Hi, we're the Goo Goo Dolls. We're fortunate that our daughters have what they need to grow and learn. But that isn't the case for nearly 13 million kids in the U.S. that struggle with hunger. Childhood hunger is a heartbreaking reality that Feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste and provides it to families and children in need. You can help kids in need in your community by visiting feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. The possibility of lung cancer can be pretty scary, especially if you're one of approximately 8 million current or former smokers at high risk. That's why SaveByTheScan.org wants you to know that now there's a breakthrough low-dose CT scan that can detect lung cancer early, and it only takes 60 seconds. You stop smoking. Now start screening. For an easy quiz to see if you're eligible, visit SaveByTheScan.org. It could save your life. SaveByTheScan.org is brought to you by the American Lung Association's Lung Force Initiative and the Ad Council. You took the first step and quit smoking, but even former smokers may still be at risk for lung cancer. That's why SaveByTheScan.org wants you to know about a new low-dose CT scan that can detect lung cancer early. It takes only 60 seconds and could save your life. You took the first step, now take the next. Visit SaveByTheScan.org for a simple quiz to see if you're eligible and talk to your doctor about screening. SaveByTheScan.org is brought to you by the American Lung Association's Lung Force Initiative and the Ad Council. First, I hold my hands out like they're on a steering wheel. Then I look over my shoulder. One, okay, cool guy. Two, three times. Next, oh, I put it in reverse. Meep, meep, meep. Then I take it up and down, up, up, and down. And that, kiddos, is called the forklift. Dance like a dad. It's a great way to make a moment with your kids. Now that's dancing. Sure beats flossing. Visit fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Spacey on the Right. Hey, y'all. Welcome and what up, what up, what up. Um, Thank you so much for being with us. Hey, if you know of somebody who has a business who wants to advertise, the podcast has great download numbers. We are hoping for even more, but until then, we would love to have you sponsor the program. Um, any, anybody, um, well, I can't say anybody. Let me be a little more clear. You need to be, um, someone who's in line with our philosophy here. Christian worldview and producing a great product that we would be happy to represent here on the show. But yeah, let me know. Info at stacyontheright.com. Um, so 22% of millennials say they have no friends. Now, what does this have to do with the shooting? Because this is a generation of people who are experiencing loneliness at at an epidemic level who are not able to interface with each other in the same ways that we did. Uh, You guys know how it is When, when I was younger Um, interfacing with friends. Well, I grew up in Germany where every time you picked up the phone, there was a little meter on the phone. And so you had to pay. Every call was a paid call. So all of my phone calls were something like, Hey, can I speak to Anna? Okay. Hey, Anna, it's me, Stacy. Um, can you come out? Um, okay. Where do you want to meet? Okay. Let's meet by, um, let's meet by Sophia's house so we can ring her doorbell. Okay. 
All right. Are you bringing your dog? Okay. Bye. So the phone calls had to be quick because the Deutschmarks would rack up. And if the phone bill came and it was really big, my mom would make us clean like extra. We'd have to clean extra or she would dock our allowance and our allowances were not big enough to handle that Deutschmark conversion rate. Like it was not cool. So, um, we would definitely be not on the phone, but we would also, um, we would also do other things that were super fun. Uh Uh-oh. Okay. That was a little bit of latency. And so we would meet and we would talk. And so even if you were on restriction, I remember one night I'd been on restriction for the whole weekend and no one had seen me and I was laying on my bed reading and I heard what sounded like something hitting the glass. And so I got up and looked out my window and my friends had gotten some other friends and it was a little gaggle of them down in the parking lot. So I lived in, um, you know, so military housing is like these apartment buildings that are three stories tall and there's like a few units in each one. And so we lived on the second floor. So we had a balcony on the front and then the bedrooms are, you know, further down the unit. And so you have this basically these double pane German windows with the, the umlauten inside. So they would roll the little rolling, um, they're rolling screens that basically make your room dark. And <laughs> so you, you'd hear this little rocks hitting and I would open my window. I'd crank it up and I'd say, what, Hey, what are you guys doing? They're like, we haven't seen you all weekend. What's going on? Now, they wouldn't call because if they hadn't seen you all weekend, that means your parents hadn't let you out. And so I'd say, oh, I'm on restriction. I can't come outside. And so sometimes they would sing a song or they'd do cartwheels or they'd start acting up. And then they would be out there making so much noise that invariably my parents would realize that my friends were outside. And one of my parents would always say, why are you guys outside? Why didn't you ring the doorbell? We didn't know where she was. We were coming to see, check if she was alive, Mrs. Johnson. <laughs> and then my mom would say, come inside. I'll make you some cookies. And so they'd come in and check on me and then stay for a while. And we'd pile up in the living room or the dining room and we would live because they would basically, they hadn't seen you for a couple days. You see what I'm saying? Like kids would be, kids would, kids want to know what's happening with you. And if they can't call, there was no texting. It was none of that stuff. They would come by. Now, admittedly, we lived on a military installation and it was a very small community, but it was still the idea that when people don't see you, they're supposed to come check on you. So if if you're friends with someone, even if they're an adult and they have a family, you haven't seen them in a while, they're not responding on your text thread, they're not, you you know, you email, they don't reply, um, then you text them directly. Then you actually press the call button on your phone and call them. Or God forbid, you get in your fancy $60,000 car and drive over to their house and actually put your physical finger on their physical doorbell and wait for somebody to answer the door. It might turn out that the person has a cold or a flu or they're on vacation, or it might be that they really need to see your face at their door. This is something that we're losing as a culture. We won't even, we find out someone has bad news. We won't even pick up the phone and say, I'm sorry, I heard what happened. I want to let you know that I'm sorry. Because you don't have to say this shouldn't have happened to you. You don't have to have a PhD in comforting people. You don't need to have memorized four books of the Bible. You just need to be a warm human being, meaning you're alive, and you're willing to make a phone call or stand at someone's doorstep and say, I heard what happened to you and I'm sorry. That's all you have to say. The person doesn't want to overburden you with their problems. They're not going to spend the next hour delighting you in every minutia and detail of what happened to them. What they probably say is, come in. Would you like a drink? How are you? You know, that people want to get outside of themselves. Yes, they want to vent, but most people have already vented. They just want someone to, to acknowledge your, what happened to you is real and I, I'm sorry. And that's what we're losing. So millennials, in, in case you're wondering who they are, they're currently aged 23 to 38. This is supposed to be the time of their life where their careers are taking off. Their families are well underway. Before their joints are aching, they're still young enough to, you know, take selfies, but old enough to, you know, be able to take a vacation for eight days. But a recent poll and some corresponding research indicate that there's something huge missing for many in this generation, and it's companionship. A recent poll from YouGov, a polling firm and market research company, found that 30% of millennials say they feel lonely. This is the highest percentage of all of the generations who were surveyed for this poll. Now, Am I saying this is their parents' fault? No. At the ages of, between the ages of 23 and 38, it's kind of your responsibility to get into some clubs or groups or join a church 
you know, get into a, an organization where you can interface with people. But it, 22% of these millennials said they have zero friends. 27% they said they had no close friends. 30% said they have no best friends. And 25% said they have no acquaintances. 25% of millennials said they have no acquaintances. An acquaintance is someone that you meet through someone else. You meet them in a tertiary way and you remember their name and they remember your name. It's pretty easy to be someone's acquaintance. In comparison, just 16% of Gen Xers and 9% of baby boomers said they had no friends. The poll looks at 1,254 adults age 18 and up, did not report results for the up-and-coming Gen Z who report high levels of loneliness on other surveys, or for the oldest adults in the country who, quite honestly, the oldest adults in America have it banging on all cylinders. They're killing it. All of my friends who are in that oldest age category, they look younger than they are. They're physically fit. They can walk just as fast as I can or faster. And they're rolling in cash because they've made great choices, great life decisions. So and even though loneliness tends to increase markedly after age 75, the people I see most often saying to me, hey, let's have lunch, let's get together, let's do something, are people who are 60 and over because they know they have the skills, the conversational and people skills needed to connect to people. When they meet you, if they want to know more about you, they'll say, I'd like to get to lunch with you. Here's my card or can I have your card? Then after they do that, they will reach out to you again later and say, "Um, remember me, we met at so-and-so. I mentioned that I wanted to have lunch. What days do you have available? Uh, Where do you, what part of town do you live in? I can come to you or we can meet in the middle. Oh, we live in the same part of town. Have you ever eaten at so-and-so? Let's eat there. These people literally will rope you into a lunch before you, you're with them five minutes. They want to get to know more about you. Within a week, they'll be sitting down with you at a table someplace eating. So social isolation is a huge problem. Why do a fifth of 20 to 30 something say they lack friends? Now, the poll didn't measure why. And other polls are showing that teens are increasingly depressed, anxious, and suicidal. Um, and they say they don't know why this is happening. And there's some really negative indicators for if you're lonely. If you're lonely, you have a higher incidence of high blood pressure or heart disease because it literally breaks your heart. Um, there is a increase in the risk of dying, 26% higher risk of dying if you are actually lonely. Um, 21% increase in mortality if you're depressed or if you have anxiety. But if you're lonely, 26% increase in chance that you'll die. There's evidence that chronic loneliness can turn on genes that are involved with inflammation, which can be a risk factor for heart disease and cancer. So we need stress. Stress is a motivator for us. And we need some loneliness because loneliness in some ways can motivate us to change behaviors and to be better people, but not at this level, not at this kind of chronic loneliness. So here's, here's, and this piece is also linked in the show notes at listen.stacyontheright.com. And so why am I covering this with you in conjunction with, so I have all these other things that we probably won't get to here. Um, the bipartisan deal on the red flag legislation that Lindsey Graham has announced. I guess I could get into that really quickly as we close out here. Um, why am I linking all these things together? Because there's a link. Um, it, it's not something that I'm kind of stringing together on my own. This is what we have going on in this country. Americans are lonely. Um, millennials are more lonely than everyone else. And so while we're all talking about like gun control and things like that, what we should be focused on is how we can increase our interpersonal relationships and how we can spread as Christians, because this is still Christian radio, AFR or not, this is still Christian radio. Um, how can we increase our level of impact as the hands and feet of Jesus Christ in this situation? And that is, we have to be willing to say, okay, we have a problem here. What does God's word say about it? And how can we invite somebody to Bible study? How can we invite somebody to go to lunch and actually make that happen? How can we ring someone's doorbell that we haven't seen or heard from in a while and ask them how they're doing? Look them in the eye and ask them how they're doing. How can we just, at, when you're at the grocery store and you walk through the very front of the grocery store, I don't know about where, where you live, but here in Missouri, the Deerbergs, the Schnooks, all of them, they have these little areas up at the front that it's like, it's so hard to walk by. It's impulse by heaven. It's like scented soaps, candles, little, basically they're housewarming gifts. How about you go and buy that, you know, six or $7 bar of soap? You don't, you don't do this often, but we're talking about somebody you haven't seen in, in 10 months. Put it in a gift bag, you know, stuff a piece of tissue paper in there 
and head over to that person's house and say, hey, I was thinking about you. How are you? Haven't seen you in a while. Does this mean you're going to spend every day with this person for the rest of your life? No, I didn't say go marry them. I said, go ring their doorbell and find out how they're doing. You are responsible for the care of your neighbors. I don't mean you're paying their mortgage, but I'm, I mean, you're waving at them across the street. And if their, their garden is on point or if their pots on their front porch look good, tell them, give them a compliment. That person who's standing in front of you sighing really heavily at the grocery store, you like their shoes, tell them. They smell good, tell them. You know, find something you can say nice. If we don't start being better to each other, the impact of the natural sin that is in this world will be even more devastating for us. And so I'm not saying that these kind of feel-good measures are the answer to a mass shooting, but I am saying that taking care of each other is. And we have a responsibility to do that. If you think about what we're dealing with when it comes to evil and how rampant it's running in this country, and the idea that we're going to just, we're going to fight that by waiting on some legislator to come and and pass a bill. They're passing bills all the time. The president is signing legislation all the time. I get it in my email. I skim through the first four or five paragraphs. I'm like, I don't even know what this bill is about. I don't even know why I should care. If bills were the answer to this, we would be living in a beautiful utopia. I would have hydrangea bushes that were fully grown and developed and the deer wouldn't be eating them and they'd be all over my property. I'd be 20 pounds lighter and uh, we, none of us would have to wear sunscreen. His bills would have been introduced on all of those things and they would already be, they would have come to pass. So if the answer is bills, what's happening? Why, why, why aren't we all just killing it right now? Because the answer isn't bills. Getting legislators to pass bills is not going to solve any of the problems that we're facing right now to include especially the idea of mass shootings, which brings me to what Senator Lindsey Graham has going on here. So I got just a minute left here. Uh, he says that they've struck a bipartisan deal to write legislation that would encourage states to adopt red flag laws, allowing guns to be taken from potentially dangerous individuals. And he vowed to take action in the wake of this weekend shooting. So what this will do is this will make it possible for pe- someone who doesn't like you to say that you said something crazy and get your guns taken away. But the people who are real threats will still be running around doing the five steps that I outlined to you. Remember, we were just talking about that. The five steps where they go from being a regular person to someone who would actually you know, go into their office and kill all their previous coworkers or go to a church and kill everybody inside or after they've had Bible study with them or, you know, go into a nightclub and stay on the phone with their wife while they kill everybody inside. Come on. <laughs> we, we are not going to solve this with, and you know, God bless you, Lindsey Graham. I love it since you've given up the ghost and you're now like a regular Republican again. You're awesome. Thanks God that you're, you're back. But this isn't going to help anything. This will not change anything. You will love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. Beautiful are the feet of our God in the temple. We lift you up, Lord. We repent. Please turn your hand of grace and mercy to us. See you tomorrow.